next section we're going to deal with. And tonight we're going to see how far in this section that we get through. Um, there's a lot here. There's much more depth than just going, well, God made a garden and God threw a, a, a man in there and, and, and there, there it was. <laughs> let's, let's move on. Um, there's an incredible depthness that we, we often miss or we don't dive deep enough to see it. But I believe it's going to help open up the rest of the Bible to help us understand where God is going, what God is doing, why God is doing it. Even as well, the importance of man in all of this and what God is going to do through mankind. And so let's begin here. I'm going to read for us verses 8 to 14, just that way we kind of cover it all and you kind of see in in your mind where we're going. Matter of fact, I'll just, I'll back up to verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And we dealt with all that last week, how God, through the ideas to form, as with taking the little dirt as he's talking about, the dust of the earth, if you will, and to form this clay, and then as a, as a sculptor would, a, a clay pot, and then to breathe life. It's the idea of what we talked about, the illustration of, of CPR, how it used to be, where you mouth to mouth. It is where God himself forms and fashions man and breathes into him and makes him a living, breathing soul. Now we come to this place, and there's been mention already of the garden. There's, there's no rain there. Uh, there wasn't a man to, to till the ground, which alludes to the fact that one day he's going to have to till the ground because sin is going to cause a curse to the ground. The earth's not going to get better. And by the way, we don't have a mother earth, and earth is not going to get better and better. We can try to switch everything to uh, you know, electric cars, but guess what? Uh, we need gas and diesel and, and coal to make the plants, to make the batteries for those things, to make the power and the energy. Saw a picture the other day on Facebook, which, he, of course, it's on Facebook, so of course you can believe it. It was uh, an electric car on the side of the road getting uh, powered by a generator to get recharged so it could keep going. And and you think about this. I mean, this is the way our world is going. And uh, regardless of your opinion or thoughts on your spectrum about what you think, how we should take care of the earth, we should take care of the earth. But we are also called as God had given man dominion over it. It doesn't mean that we abuse the earth, but rather we understand that now, after Genesis chapter 3, which is the world that we're living in, it is sin cursed. It will not get better until God says, boom. Here's a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness, and I will make all things new and wipe away all tears and all these wonderful things and truths. Now, uh, the garden has been mentioned, and and that's what we're going to focus on tonight, but let me finish reading 8 to 14, uh, this main section here. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison, and that is uh, which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, and where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedulam and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon, the same as that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hadekel, and it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And we'll stop there tonight. Verse number eight begins with seeing the Garden of Eden. Now, if you are like me, when we read about this, we have a million and a half questions about the Garden of Eden. 
We want to know exactly where it was. How big was it? What did it look like? How beautiful was it? How big were the trees, right? What was the actual fruit? How many of you learned when you were a kid that they ate an apple and, and, it, and then that's what did it all, right? Can you find me the chapter and verse where that? Right, we can't, right? But we see in all the little pictures for all the kids, Sunday school lessons, it's got fig leaves, they're already covered up, and then they've got an apple and, and they, you know, it makes kids think apples are bad, right? We got we to gotta think of them that it's like a Vienna sausage tree or something, right? <laughs> a Brussels sprout tree, I don't know. Uh, think about this though it wasn't an, we don't know it was an apple but we have all these questions and guess what we don't have all the answers and that's okay there's a part of this wonderful mystery and we know this though that what the earth was like beforehand and especially the garden it's no longer the same because the catastrophic flood has come because sin entered the world and sin brought about death separation and ultimately the judgment of god because man got worse and worse and worse now as one commentator writes, the phrase, a garden in Eden in the east, makes it clear that Eden is a locality here, not just a symbol, although the same Hebrew form Eden appropriately means delight. The name means to be related to the Sumerian Eden uh, in verses 10 to 14, go to some links to present it as an actual, not allegorical or mythical spot. I believe that Eden was a very real place. Do we know the exact location? No, we do not. Do we know exactly what it looked like? No, we do not. Do we know exactly how big it was? No, we do not. But what we do know is that it is a real place. How do I know it's a real place? God said that he planted a garden in the east of Eden. Therefore, because God said it, I'm going to believe it. Uh, plain and simple. Now, someone say, well, that's too simple. That's fairy tale stuff. Uh, this, this book doesn't start with once upon a time. It says in the beginning, God. Uh, that, that's no fairy tale. That's declaring who God is and that God is God and God alone, and therefore he establishes, creates, and decrees all these things. Therefore, we can trust it. We don't have to defend the fact that God is God, and that God is real, and that God has created these things. We let his word do, do the work here. But he says, and the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Now, eastward in the Bible is actually very important here, all right? First of all, the fact that the garden was in the east in Eden raises the question of its exact location. Elsewhere in Genesis, the notion of eastward is associated with separation from God's presence. You can see that chapter 3, verse 24, chapter 11, verse 2, chapter 13, verse 11. Also, when the man and woman are expelled from the garden, the cherubim are placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, giving the impression that the garden itself was not in the east. However, in other words, uh, Salehammer writes, the garden was planted in a place called Eden which was apparently to be taken as a location larger than the garden itself. If in the east is taken with reference to Eden, the garden was on its eastern side. But what's going to happen here in this is we can try to guess its location. We know that the garden is of some substance, it is some uh, largeness uh, to be a, a land, a place where man and woman are able to go around and to walk and to observe animals and to eat of trees and, and the fruit that is there and to enjoy the beauty of God's creation. Remember, this is a perfect place. You and I don't understand what a perfect place is like. Uh, we can try to make, a, you know, there's, they say, no, you know, home sweet home. There's no place like home and all that good stuff, but it's still not perfect, right? We find little, little things, don't we, all the time. There's always something to fix at our house or, or a church building or whatever it might be, but this was a literal perfect place as good of a sunrise as you've seen it's nothing compared to the beauty of this place it is not tainted by sin and so that's what we have to understand here that is the the real issue so uh, when we look at this 
as Salehammer continues to write, in any, uh, in, in any event, if, in, if, excuse me, if a geographical direction is meant, the author is apparently establishing an important distinction between East and West that will become of great thematic importance throughout the remainder of the book. Now, remember that the post-world flood is totally different. So where exactly it is, we don't know. There are some who would say Iraq. There are some who say modern-day Israel. I would say, I don't know. <laughs> but it was very much real, and I believe it's been very much destroyed. Uh, it was very much protected after the sin and the fall of man to where they could not go back in, which reminds us very much of in Revelation chapter 22 where we have the new heavens and the new earth, the city of Jerusalem wherein dwelleth righteousness, that there is nothing that can enter in that can defile it or anything that is unrighteous. And so the same reason I believe that Adam and Eve or any of their descendants were able to go back into the garden. What you'll see later on in chapter 3 after the fall is that God really drives them out and he places at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turneth every way to keep the way of the tree of life. He's making sure they're not getting back in. Right? They're not sneaking around the cherubims. They're not sneaking around the flaming sword. They're not sneaking around the eyes of God. So uh, the importance is less about, hey, can we figure out exactly where it is? Because there are many people who are still yet even trying to find uh, a lost ark, or they're trying to find uh, where the garden might be and all these things. We can try to find all those things, and we still miss the most key part, and that is the God who created it. We could find the garden, and guess what? People would still say, well, that's not the same one that God made, or how do we know? There's always going to be these questioners and these doubters and everything else. The, the garden here, though, serves as a, as a backdrop just to show us the peak point of creation. The peak point is not the garden of Eden itself. Rather, the peak point of creation is who? Adam. He is the crown jewel of creation, not because Adam is going to be this perfect man who will never sin. Rather, he's going to be uh, a perfect man who has the ability to sin, therefore he does sin and casts all of humanity into sin that we would all be born with sinful natures. It would be him who would fail his job uh, to keep the garden free from sin and to uh, teach and to lead his wife and to lead children and all of these things. Adam failed in every opportunity that he should have succeeded and he should have succeeded. It, it, was, it was him, his, his wife, whenever she comes along, mind you, and, and, and God. And that's it, and just one rule. And he couldn't quite make it. We don't know even how far along he, he did make it. We know, though, that the garden here is certainly a real place, but there is an importance here, a higher purpose. As we've dealt with in chapter 1, every day of creation that something new was made, where God made the, uh, the, divided the land and the waters, where God then uh, made the stars and the sun and the galaxies and the universe and the expanse and all this. We saw the greater and higher purpose for all of those things. One, they were leading up to the purpose of man to use those things, to use the stars, to use the oceans, to use the animals, to all of that stuff. But as well as they all pointed to something greater, which is the worship and glory of God. All of creation is created to bring worship and glory to God. You want to know what your life purpose is? Right? Everyone wants to know what their, their special purpose in life is. It is to worship and glorify God. That means whether you're a doctor, lawyer, or uh, uh, just a, a stay-at-home mom, or whether you're retired, whether you, you're still trying to figure it out, right? your purpose is to worship and glorify God. You want to know what Adam's purpose was? To worship and glorify God. Every bit of creation 
That is the purpose. So as we come to the Garden of Eden, which is teeming with life at this point, there's animals going around, mind you, even dinosaurs. There's dinosaurs roaming, and they're not eating each other, and they're not eating other animals. They're having a good old time. The, the lion is laying down with the lamb, if you will, much like we'll see one day in the kingdom of God. There, there is man who is surrounded by all of these animals and doesn't have to live in fear. And, and nor do the animals live in fear of man. If you go hunting, you do a couple things before you go out in the woods. First, you, you wake up early, you stop by Hardy's, get a sausage biscuit, then you hid in the woods, right? There's an order of hunting. That's what you got to do. It's a part of it. It's in the rule books. But before you step out into your tree stand or out in the woods, normally what takes place is you spray yourself down with some decenter, right, as much as possible, or you put up other stuff that smells like outdoors to try to mask up your human odor because we stink. Now, if you think about this, the deer normally don't even see you before they run away from you because they smell you first and then they run away, right? This morning, as a matter of fact, I'm walking the, the Beaver, Beaver Dam Trail, and guess what? I get to see off in the woods running away from me because smells me, smells the dog, and smells whatever else in the around, and takes off. So the animals nowadays we see are, have this natural sort of fear towards us. But here, there's no fear. Why is there no fear? Because there's no sin. This is a perfect garden, a perfect place. Ultimately, the great high purpose of the garden, first of all, it is for man to enjoy, and more importantly, to enjoy the presence of the God who made him in the garden itself. Now, he's in a perfect place, right? This is home sweet home. There is no sin. There is no fear. There is no anxiety. There is no worry. There is nothing to keep Adam from enjoying this place. Everything is at his expense. Everything is there for him to use. Everything is there as a tool. The only thing that he can't do is eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Everything else, man, enjoy this thing. Enjoy this creation. And by the way, you and I are meant to enjoy the creation of God. It, wake up and, and watch a sunrise. It, you know, watch the sunset. Look at the stars, right? Enjoy the beauty of what God has done. But may it point us not to the creation, but to the creator, because that's the whole role of the garden here. It's not for Adam to go, oh, man, let me worship this rock. This sure is a pretty rock. Or, wow, the tree of life, that fruit tastes real good. I, I, I'm going to, or whatever it is, and go, oh, I mean, I'm going to worship this tree now. No, it always points back to knowing and worshiping and glorifying God. And that, that's Adam's goal. And that's the goal of the garden. It's to point us, and it's to point Adam to seek God in all things. It points man to worship the God of creation, not the creation itself. Now, if anyone had a, a, a maybe a danger of worshiping the creation, you would think, Adam, being in a perfect place, you and I ha live in a world where people worship the creation all the time, and it's a fallen creation. Adam lived in a perfect place, and yet he always knew that this is not about the trees. It's not about the animals or the beauty of all of these things. This is about the God who walks and talks with me, who formed and fashioned me and breathed life into my lungs and and allows me to live, and has given me this place to have dominion over, and, and to worship him, and to know him. It, it could not get any better for him. But third, and this is where we're going to spend some time tonight, the garden, and the great high purpose for the garden, is that it points as a picture to the tabernacle. As Salehammer writes, it is the primordial meeting place between God and his image bearer, humankind. Now, you and I often don't read the Old Testament near enough or like we should and i granted we're new testament believers absolutely but guess what christ is very much in the old testament 
the Old Testament points to Christ, the New Testament points to Christ, backwards at what he's done and forwards at what he's about to do. And so that's the beauty. This book that God has given where he has revealed himself, this tells the redemption history of mankind through none other than the second person of the Trinity who is from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who would bleed and die for your sins and my sins, who would be raised again the third day according to the Scriptures to seek and to save that which is lost, to offer life to all those who would believe and trust in Him. But we have to look at a place in the Bible that talks about the tabernacle. Now, if you remember back to maybe some old Sunday school lessons and things, the tabernacle was the place that God instructed the children of Israel as they are marching to the promised land to build. He gave them specific instructions about what is to be made out of, the colors of it, the setup of it, who's to set it up, who's to tear it down, who can enter, who cannot enter, who's to carry it on the journey, uh, which way it's supposed to be facing. And by the way, that whole eastward-westward thing, you know which way the, it was supposed to be pointed? Not east, but west. Why? Because what we find is throughout the Old Testament and throughout history of religions, pagan religions always have an issue of pointing themselves toward the east. You know which way a Muslim would point their prayer rug? To the east. You know which way that uh, many who do, who do uh, yoga or who do uh, some sort of deep uh, um, eastern mysticism, sort of meditative state, you know which way they face? East. God has them face for, for a particular, all these particulars. But ultimately what takes place is not even, the importance of it is not so much even about the structure of the tabernacle because it's a temporary place. Why? Because ultimately it's the point to one day they're going to get to the temple, which is to be a permanent place in which God would dwell with his people. But guess what? Sin after sin, what would happen? Rebellion would come into the camp. Israel would be judged. Israel would be dispersed. They would be divided amongst each other. The temple would be destroyed. Another temple would be rebuilt, and it wouldn't be near as good. And, and, and now you look, and, and they're, they're fighting to see who can even get on the temple mountain back and forth and all of these terrible things. But guess what? One day there is coming a, a day where they will... Uh, attempt to rebuild, and I believe that has some eschatological issues, which they, by the way, have the, all the tools and resources in their training. Uh, Sanhedrin already in the training process. They're making oil to uh, anoint a Messiah. They've got, I mean, the whole, whole works. Stuff is very much in the works, but we're not looking even forward to that temple. Why? We're looking forward to Revelation 21, 22, where it says that there is no need of a temple because the Lamb of God dwells in the midst, and that's who, we, who we're for. He is our temple, if you will, where he dwells in tabernacles with us. But the Garden of Eden, I want us to look at it tonight and to focus on the fact that it is more than just a garden. It is more than just a dwelling place for Adam to live in and to enjoy. It points to the picture of what the tabernacle would be. Now, if we remember the tabernacle was the place where Moses would go in or Aaron would go in or the high priest would go in or the priest would go in to do what? To make sacrifices, wouldn't it? And specifically, once a year, they would go in for the Day of Atonement and to do this one day of atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. And guess what they would have to do come next year? The same thing. It was very, um, very detailed. It was very, um, oh, very severe in everything. It was a very bloody place. But what do we find about the garden? So far, to this point, it's not a bloody place, is it? As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. There has been no blood that has been needed to be shed because there is no sin. But yet the tabernacle is full of constantly man having to cleanse himself, 
to be able to then shed blood, sacrifice it, to cleanse the people spiritually, then to wash himself again and to continue that process over and over and over and over again. Just then, where then God says, hey, time to move, where they got to pack it up and they got to carry it on their journey all the way through the wilderness and and ultimately do so for 40 years before they get to the promised land, all of these issues with it. It was not meant to be a permanent dwelling place, but what they knew when they saw the tabernacle set up, and they saw the smoke descend upon it, and there in the Holy of Holies, that they knew God was meeting there. There's even portions of Scripture in Exodus that deal with Moses meeting there at the tent, and, and the people all stop, and they, they sort of bow in this sort of reverence of knowing that God is there. They associate the tabernacle with the presence of God, with the power of God, with the direction of God, with the leading of God, with the sacrifice and worship to God, with obedience to God, with the law of God. So when we look at the Garden of Eden, I believe the same should be said. When we see the Garden of Eden, we see several things that line up with the tabernacle. One, the Garden of Eden was a temporary place, wasn't it? Anybody been to the Garden of Eden lately? No? Me neither. Right? Anyone ever been to the tabernacle? Me neither, right? Unless you went to a church named Tabernacle. I don't know. It's possible. That's about the only way. But you have not gone to the tabernacle that Moses went into. You have not gone to the Garden of Eden, which Adam was placed into. It was a temporary place. But... Even more so, what else is there about the garden and the tabernacle? The presence of God is there. If there is perhaps a a most important feature about the Garden of Eden and about the tabernacle, is that it is a place where God comes to dwell and where God comes to dwell and interact with his creation, where he comes to meet man. Why? Because man cannot get to God, so God comes to him. The garden is a place where Adam doesn't go up to heaven to walk with God, but rather God comes to him to have fellowship and relationship where God comes to him. Then we find the tabernacle. Man still cannot climb a stairs or or a ladder to get to God and to talk with him. And so what happens? God comes to the tabernacle. What happens later on when after thousands of years, man is still trying but failing to keep the law of God. They are still dead in their sins and trespasses. They are still trying to work their way to heaven. All these terrible things. And they can't seem to get an escape out of it that the promised Savior comes, who is Jesus, and as John chapter 1 tells us, that he dwelled among us. That phrase is the same phrase used in the Old Testament as tabernacle, to dwell with. So once more, God comes to man because man can't get to God. Then, what do we find later on in eternity? We find that God brings us to him and that he brings heaven to earth, if you will and a new heaven, and a new earth. It is God who does the work of these things, but the garden is to be the place, a sacred place, a holy place. The Garden of Eden, if you will, is the Holy of Holies. It is a place where Adam, who is acting as a priest, which we'll see later next week, but I want to plug that in your mind. All right, he, he's, he's no ordinary gardener here. All right, He's not out there to try to pick up carrots and potatoes and stuff and give them to God because God's hungry. He's there to act as a priest to keep the garden pure. Adam's going to fail at that. You see, the garden, like the tabernacle, only certain certain ones could enter in. Only, uh, Only righteousness could enter in. But what happens the moment that Adam and Eve sin? God has to pronounce judgment, but God gives grace and mercy immediately by clothing them, by shedding innocent blood to cover them, and then he has to do what? Kick them out. And say, you can't come back in. 
This shows us that there is a foreshadowing of a distance between God and man. Why? Because God is God, man is man. But when we look here at the Garden of Eden and the way that he places man into it, is that this shows that Adam is going to act much like those priests would do, to go into the presence of God on behalf of the people. We forget, and we're going to look at this later on as we get later into chapter 2 and 3 specifically, Adam is in the Garden of Eden on behalf of you and I. All right, when, when Adam sins, you sin too. That this is imputed sin. It is, it is this idea that, let's put it this way, when you were saved, the moment you were saved, you were justified in the eyes of God, declared righteous forever. It was not just as if you had never sinned, but it was as if you yourself had kept all the law of God been perfect in his sight. Why? Because it is Christ who fulfilled the law. It is Christ who lived a perfect sinless life. It is Christ who knew no sin, but became sin for us on our behalf. It is that we are crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live because it is Christ who has died for us. And now in Christ it is he who lives for us. Adam acted as the federal head. So in this place, he is in there and he's got an option to one, obey God and to keep this tabernacle, if you will, the Garden of Eden, a pure and a perfect place where God and man can dwell together because there is no sin. There is no distance. There is no need of forgiveness. There is no need of redemption because man is in harmony with God because he can walk and talk with him because he's righteous before him. He has not committed sin. Or he has the option to disobey God, his one rule, and to thrust then all of humanity into sin. There are some who say, well, you know, how is it that we inherit this sin? Well, I would ask you this. If you're saved, how is it that you can inherit righteousness? That's the real question. You see, we inherit because Adam acts as our federal head in the garden, which his failure will thrust us into sin and death in separation from God, but Christ acting as a federal head of those of faith, when he dies on the cross for our sins and he becomes our sin and pays the price for our sin, then what does that do for us? It means that the righteousness that he has gets imputed then to us and we go from death unto life. We go from separated to being in him and to him and us, to, to being able to dwell with God and to know that one day we will physically and literally glorified, uh, glorifiedly <laughs> live with him, that, that it will work out. We have to understand this federal headship of who Adam is and what the garden represents. Because Adam would fail, it's going to mess up everything. So when we read about the garden of God, I want us to see much more than just the place where there's apples and oranges and bananas and all these things and all the animals running around. And yes, Adam and Eve not having a stitch of clothes on and they run around buck naked and everything's okay. There is much more to this. This, this is the garden where God and men can dwell together. And this points to the fact that one day we will do the same thing. However, we will do so in a perfect place where there says, the Bible says there will be no more curse there. Here, to put it plainly, and to help give you this sort of diagram of picture of all this is Genesis 2, we've got the garden, which points to the tabernacle, both of which would be the temporary dwelling place of God where God and man can meet together. 
then that will point to Jesus who temporarily puts on flesh in that time to walk this earth, to fulfill the law, to do his earthly ministry, to die on the cross, to bear our sins, and that he would tabernacle with men that would point to then the end of Revelation where God will tabernacle with us with no need of a temple because of the centrality of his presence. You can read Revelation 21 and 22 for that. So when we read and see Genesis 1 and 2, and we see Revelation 21 and 22, and then we look at the beginning, uh, or we see rather the, the middle part of Scripture, if you will, the Gospels, we find that God desires to dwell with man and man to dwell with God. Not because God is lonely, not because God needs man, but rather because man needs God. And, and in this relationship of redemption throughout all of human history, God is most glorified in such. He is able best in that way to demonstrate his power, demonstrate his love, to demonstrate his holiness, to demonstrate his grace and his mercy and every other attribute that you can possibly describe of God. And he places man in this. And we find that this whole phrase of understanding about what the garden really is, is that it foreshadows, though, that man will be distanced by sin and will need a mediator who will be prophet, priest, and king. You see, those who had their tabernacle in, in the Old Testament, what they needed is they needed a priest to go in there on their behalf. They needed a prophet to preach, thus saith the Lord. They needed a king to rule over them according to the Scriptures and to uh, use the authority of God to keep the people under the law of God and to obey God and His commands. Three separate offices, three separate people because no one in the Old Testament or New Testament, for that matter, could fulfill it except for one man and that is Christ Jesus. So what is Adam doing in the garden? Well, we're going to see this later on next week, but he's trying to fulfill all three roles, but he will fail. But this points that Christ alone, Jesus, the God-man, acts as prophet, priest, and king for you and I for all of eternity. And that he can only be all three. He's the only one that can be all three on our behalf to reconcile us through the blood of his cross. Now we come to what we call the title here, the, the tale of two trees, which really we're going to look at, at three trees. And tonight we might just get to, to the one here. But the, the question needs to be asked, what do we know about these trees? It says, first of all, in verse number nine, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. This means that they are beautiful in a physical way. And they could be very tall, I don't know what exactly they look like, but we do know that they are pleasant to the sight. It reminds me, of course, of, you know, the fall time. I don't believe that there's a prettier time for trees than in the fall. The leaves are changing colors, the beautiful reds and burgundies and oranges and yellows and golds and, and all these things. The trees look beautiful. Here we see that he says that it is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now, those two phrases are going to be important. Because over in chapter 3, in verse 6, and when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. Boys, there's some foreshadowing going on here. That man naturally looks and wants with his eyes what looks good and wants food, the sustenance to fill his belly. We care about the flesh or about our outward even though here in this point, Adam has not yet sinned nor fallen into sin, and it's foreshadowing the fact that one day 
every man, woman, and child who is ever born is going to care about one thing, and that is themselves. And that is fulfilling the lust of their eyes and flesh and the pride of life. He then says, it's good for food. You know what that means? It's good for food. <laughs> All right. It says, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, some could try to look at this and say, well, this means that the tree of life is right in the middle. It certainly could mean that, but the idea of midst is at least that it is in the garden somewhere. Now, it's certainly plausible to see that it could be in the middle. Um, here in a little while later, probably not tonight, because I don't want to rush it and I don't want to make heads explode and stuff, and I feel like I might have gone too far, so stop me if I have. We'll just get out of here, right? But here, looking at these trees, I want to ask the question, what do we know? All right, what do we know about? First of all, it is part of the every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. That's what we know about tree of life. The, the tree of life so far is that it is pleasant, it looks good, it's got good food, right? So I, what kind of fruit it is, I don't know. There's many who debate. One could argue it was uh, a Krispy Kreme fruit frog. I don't know. It, it's possible. It could have been shaped the same way and had a delicious glaze. I don't know. But nevertheless, it is the tree of life. It is life-giving in what it does. It has some sort of eternal significance to those who partake of it for a sustaining of a particular condition. I find no reason as to why Adam could not have partaken of this up to this point. I don't have a reason to see it, and if someone does, please let me know and we can talk about it afterwards. There's so much here, though. What we do know is that it seems to have this because if it did not have an eternal significance for eating of one of these trees or both of these trees, then why in the world would after the fall God would protect Adam and Eve from going back in to it? Because he says in, ver uh, in chapter 3, um, in verse 22, And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. See, there's that foreshadowing coming to, to fruition there. So he drove out the man and he placed him on the east side of the garden of Eden, cherubims and a flaming sword, which turned every way to keep the way the tree of life. The tree of life is this sort of idea, almost you can imagine, of righteousness and obedience and worship of God. It is one who knows God and has a right to this, to this tree, if you will. So God says, basically, there in chapter 3, after the fall, that there's certainly some sort of eternal significance. Because he says, I've got to keep Adam and Eve from coming back in here, lest they eat of it and live forever. I believe the idea is that it would have the sense of after their fall, that if they were to partake then of that tree of life, that it would have kept them in an eternally damned state forever. Now, here's what we do know is that later go, they're going to have children that are going to lead to Seth, that's going to lead down to Noah, that's going to lead down to Abraham, it's going to lead down to Isaac, to Jacob, all the way down to David, all the way down to Jesus, who would be the Messiah. So it doesn't work out that way. They are not able to go back in and to damn themselves forever. God protects them. Why does he do such a thing? You see, earlier he's not protecting them and telling them that they can't eat of except for one tree. But it's a Satan who's going to come along and say, hey, you say God's good and that he takes care of you and provides you all this 
garden here, but he won't let you eat of that one tree. That doesn't sound very good of him. It doesn't sound very giving of him. It sounds like he's trying to withhold from you. That's exactly what Satan does, the father of lies. And then what would happen is that later on, the act of God's grace and mercy is that instead of God daring them all to hell, including Satan the serpent forever, is that he then kills an innocent one to clothe them in coats of skin and banishes them from the garden so that way they could not eat of the tree of life and, and face an eternal punishment forever and forever. We see that God is always acting from the very beginning in mercy and grace and kindness. Now, the three trees here. First, we're going to get to this one tonight, and this is where we'll end. The tree of life is found, first of all, here in chapter 2 and in chapter 3. It is given here in the garden. It represents the life of which man was meant to live in the garden with God, life-giving and sustaining. I want you to know, mankind was not meant to live in the way which we live today. Man was meant to know God, to live with God, to live for God, to glorify God, to worship God, and do so perfectly and completely. What do you think heaven is really all about? To be glorified means when we're in heaven that we will be living our life as we were meant to on earth, but on earth we were tainted with sin because of one man's sin. So then sin and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. We have sinned in Adam, whereas those in Christ, we are forgiven in Christ because of what he has done on our behalf. So when we get to heaven, we will finally be living like we were supposed to have been forever. Things right now are not supposed to be this way that they are. Even on the best of days, it is still nothing compared to living in a perfect unity and presence of God without sin. And we can't quite imagine that because we've never lived our life that way, but one day we will, and that's the true beauty of heaven. Certainly the splendor and the glories and all the things that we'll see are great and all, but perhaps one of the greatest is the fact that we will be completely serving the Lord as we were always meant to be. Right now, things are not as such. As commentator Kidner writes about this chapter 2 and 3 about the tree of life, it says, it says, it does not make the trees magical, for the Old Testament has no room for blind forces, only for the acts of God, but rather sacramental in the broad sense of the word and that they are the physical means of a spiritual transaction. The fruit, not in its own right, but as appointed to a function in carrying a word from God, confronts man with God's will, particular and explicit, and gives man a decisive yes or no to say with his whole being. So you want to know in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, the real key of the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Tree of life. Adam, enjoy. Tree of knowledge of good and evil. One rule, Adam, not this one. Not this one. Not this one. So, the significance of the fruit that is on this tree is not whether it's an apple or an orange or a, a Krispy Kreme donut. The importance of the fruit is the fruit of man's choice. That he will either obey God and live forever, or he will disobey God and face consequences. So what is sin? Sin is to say yes to the wrong tree. So what is faith? Faith is to say no to the tree we are supposed to say no to and to say yes to the tree of life. And I'm going to stop here tonight. We're going to see next week a second tree, not found here in Genesis, 
and it is a tree of life. And it is the tree of which Christ was crucified upon. And the same choice is given. Say no and be damned. Say yes by faith and live. The garden is much bigger than just a garden. The garden pictures the glories of what heaven should be and what your life as an image bearer of God should be and to know God in fullness and to walk with him and to know him and to worship and glorify him in the way in which we were designed to. The garden represents us living up to the purpose of image bearers. The garden points to the worship of God in the tabernacle and points even further down to the one day we will be with him, not in a garden, but in his very presence where there will be no more sin ever again. May we long for that day. May we desire to return to the Lord And may we, unlike Adam, make the right choice every day. And the choice is simple. Disobedience or faithfulness. That's what an image bearer does. An image bearer chooses to trust God and obey God, which brings glory to God. That's our purpose. I know there's a lot there. We'll get into more of it next week, picking off with these trees. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night. God, I thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your love towards us, that we can study your word. Lord, there is so much depth here, and we could keep digging for our entire life and still not reach the bottom. And Lord, that, that shows us your goodness and your kindness. It shows us your power and your might, but this also shows us that you have given us your word and revealed yourself to us so that we might know you as we were meant to, and that, that we can know you and have assurance that if we are in Christ, not because of any good in us, but because of all the good that he has done and his work and his word, that we will be with you once more and that you will dwell with us and we will dwell with you and so shall we ever be. Help us to long and look forward to that day and and each day and each moment that we are given the opportunity that we would choose the right tree, that we would choose the tree and that we would choose you, the tree of life and and choose faithfulness and to trust you through all things. God, I pray that you would help us tonight, give us safe travels as we go home. Help us as we are preparing for tomorrow for our, our prayer initiative, God, that we would seek your face in all things, every moment, every hour, every day. Lord, we're a needy people. Help us to be humbled and reminded of that. And God, that we might seek you earnestly and consistently and purposefully. And Lord, that you would do great and mighty things in our midst. We love you. We thank you for this time once more. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.